Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll begin with a status check on the stalled appropriations uh, process on Capitol Hill, now that a new Speaker of the House has been selected. And our guest for that segment is Tom Kahn, who served as Democratic House Budget Committee Staff Director from 1997 to 2016, which I believe is the longest such tenure in history. He now teaches budget policy at American University in Washington. And then we'll talk with Richard Coffin, Chief of Research and Advocacy at USA Facts, a nonprofit organization that uh, makes government data easier for Americans to access and understand. As usual, uh, Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson are joining the conversation. Tom, you know, last time you were on the program, first of all, welcome back to Facing the Future. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. It's really a, an honor and a delight to be back. Concord uh, is my favorite organization. Uh-huh. Well, thank you. Um, you know, when, when, when you were last on the program, we were talking about the need for the two parties to cooperate together on on fiscal choices and you know they to a certain extent they did that to avoid a government shutdown in in september um but it also resulted in speaker kevin mccarthy becoming former speaker kevin Mm -hmm. mccarthy and uh so now we have a new speaker and a new deadline uh of november 17th so i wanted to just begin by getting your impression of the current situation and whether or not with the new speaker, Mike John- uh, Johnson, they they will be able to find a way out of this shutdown dilemma. Um, well, first of all, thank you again for inviting me on. It's really a pleasure to be with you, Bob, as well as Tori and Steve. And I just want to say one thing about Concord Coalition. For the many years I worked on the Hill, um, the term Concord Coalition was a, a wonderful metaphor because it, it, I think its origin was the British are coming, the British are coming. It was a warning to, uh, to, to the American people of an invasion. And people, a lot of people on Capitol Hill did not take the deficit seriously. Um, and now they are. And to me, the term just the concept of Concord Coalition is a perfect metaphor for where we are today and the role that Concord Coalition has played for decades in warning Congress and American people that we can't go on forever borrowing the way we have been. We just can't do it. Something bad is going to happen. And so I just want to just take my hat off and commend you for the incredible work that that, that your organization does. And well, on behalf of Paul Songus and Warren Rudman, thank you. And, yes. thank <laughs> and you Pete Peterson. Much. Um, in terms of where we are right now, well, the, November 17th is the, um, uh, the, the deadline by which Congress is going to have to extend funding. So that's in about two and a half weeks, a little over two weeks. Um, and, you know, if you 
we, we obviously have a new speaker now, but if you look back at history, um, the uh, funding, uh, spending, keeping the government open has been the thing that uh, brought down John Boehner. It uh, essentially brought down Paul Ryan or would have brought down Paul if he'd stayed, if he had remained in Congress. Uh, and now it's brought down Kevin McCarthy. Um, I honestly don't see any reason why the same fate does not await um, Speaker, the new Speaker, as as, there, as his predecessors, because um, there is a wing of the Republican Party, um, and it is not the majority, to be sure, it is not a majority of the Republican Party, but it is a very vocal and influential part of the Republican Party, especially in the House, that just does not accept the notion of governing. And um, because of their unwillingness to govern and their unwillingness to accept the concept of compromise, which is compromise is the core of success of any democracy. If parties don't do compromise, then democracy can work. And if they don't, then the democracy fails and they do not accept the notion of compromise. So I think in the short term, in the short term, which is to say for the next few months, it is likely another continuing resolution will pass because the far right, uh, uh, the new Speaker Johnson is on a honeymoon, and I think they're willing to cut him a little bit of slack and allow another continuing resolution to pass. Um, but that probably will get you into January, and then and then what happens? And then ultimately, you're you're going to uh, Speaker Johnson will be faced with the same dilemma or the same challenge that his predecessors have. In terms of uh, the continuing resolution passing, and then I'll be quiet and pass the baton back to Stephen Tory. The question will be, but at what level? Because it's the question is, what will the spending level be in the new CR? And um, um, we've already seen that um, House Republicans in the spending bills that they are marking up um, are breaking the debt ceiling caps that were agreed to just a few months ago caps which democrats thought were far too low but they begrudgingly agreed to and then the republican majority and in, in, in the senate has the republican minority in the senate has gone along with that agreement but house republicans have gone way below it the cr they're now talking about will be one percent below um i guess a freeze and i'm not and probably will have all sorts of riders attached to it on issues like abortion and climate change so it is going to be dead on arrival whatever they send to the senate Sorry. I'd like to go back a little bit to this idea of, of compromise um, and how, you know, in the last 10 or 20 years, compromise has become a dirty word. But when it comes to the budget and when it comes to the word compromise, I'm a little bit nervous these days that compromise means everybody gets what they want versus compromise, meaning everybody has to sacrifice a little bit. So I'm looking, for example, at this emergency supplemental that we're considering in the House and the Senate, where we need to provide aid to Ukraine, we need to provide aid to Israel, we need to provide disaster aid. You know, perhaps there's some Indo-Pacific regions that need um, some care and attention. That's a big package. You know, the president's put forward $106 billion. House wants to separate things out and potentially pay for some of that, that stuff, but you know, those offsets, you know. Are, are, are dubious, I think. How do we get something like this emergency supplemental across the line in a way that compromises between the two parties what they want, but doesn't also compromise our fiscal position? 
How do we get lawmakers to understand that compromise means everybody gets a little bit of what they want, but compromise also means everybody has to sacrifice a little bit in the name of fiscal responsibility? It's a, it's a great question. It's a phenomenal question. And, you know, as you were speaking and the notion about, first of all, um, and as you pointed out, you've, you've actually, we actually have two supplementals, as you know, and Concord is about this, because you've got the $100 billion supplemental uh, for uh, Israel and, and Ukraine. And also, I think there's some border security money in there for fentanyl. But then there's another $50 billion, um, uh, $55 billion supplemental um, for um, emergencies for the hurricanes and for flooding and whatever else. So we're really dealing with about $150, $560 billion. Right, right. And I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it, we just can't continue on this path. That's, that's, I think, should be stipulated. The two other thoughts I have are, number one, for better or worse, and I think more for worse, there is no one really sitting at the table who's serious about deficit reduction. I think the Republicans talk about deficit reduction, but they're, they're not willing to look at things in their own area, which they're willing to give up in order to reduce the deficit. Um, and on the supplemental, as an example, they have an offset, which is cutting funding for the IRS, um, which actually adds to the deficit rather than reduces the deficit. So, so that's, unfortunately, there is not a great constituency in Congress in either party, in either party, um, for deficit reduction. The only thing is, it's an emergency, and I worry that I don't want this money to be slowed down because Israel needs the help, Ukraine needs the help, and the longer this debate goes on, the more problematic it is. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Capitol Hill budget veteran Tom Kahn about the new appropriations deadline and the new House Speaker. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Tom Kahn, former Democratic staff director for the House Budget Committee, about the looming government funding deadline, supplemental spending bills, the uh, prospects for bipartisan cooperation with a new speaker, and all things like that. Um, Steve, uh, got a question? Yeah. So, but so back to the the speaker issue for a second. Um, you know, I, I was frankly surprised that the Republicans were able to find a member amongst themselves that could get a unanimous vote. Um, and I think both sides are, you know, holding their breath to see how that's going to work out. But I think, as you pointed out, as soon as the new speaker cuts a deal uh, on the spending side, he's likely to to face the prospect of of being ousted, just like the previous speaker. And so some of the discussion previously was, well, what about a coalition speaker? What if either the moderates in the Republican Party or some of the more moderate members in the Democratic Party were to agree to vote together and elect a speaker that was more acceptable you know, to both sides of the aisle? And what, what do you think the prospects of that might be if, if in fact, Johnson is uh, deposed just like uh, McCarthy? 
Well, there was some discussion of that. Um, and um, I think that that does have some appeal um, among Democrats and some Republicans as well. Um, but I, from what I understood, um, there was intense pressure on the moderate Republicans not to go down that road uh, because that would then give power to the Democrats, um, some power sharing arrangement of some sort. The, the one thing that I did hear, and this is reported in the press, is that the night before the vote, when Kevin McCarthy, um, his fate was determined, he called uh, the Dem House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, and, and said, I'm going to need some Democratic votes to stay in office. And Jeffries said, well, let's see what we can work out. You know, we're open to a discussion about this, some some kind of a deal. He said, but, you know, you, you're going to have to compromise on something in return for some Democratic votes. Will you um, agree to put Ukraine assistance on the floor of the house and and mccarthy said no and then he said will you at least increase this to go to the spending caps in the deal no will you suspend the impeachment no what compromises will you make none and then at that point that was then jeffrey said well there's <laughs> yeah, have a nice day have a nice day <laughs> so you know there's no deal to be struck I mean, I, I think it's a very attractive offer. You know, one of the problems with the, our, our system right now, our electoral system in both parties, is the primary system in gerrymandering because, because members of Congress are always worried about either getting primaried on the left or the Democrats or primaried on the right and Republicans. And specifically, to your point, Steve, if a, if a Republican were to move to the middle and, and cut a deal with Democrats, he, she, he or she would be worried about getting challenged on the right. And frankly, Democrats would be worried about the same. And that's why I think we have to re, you know, if we're going to really rejigger the system, we have to reevaluate how primaries work. Um, uh, and, and there are alternatives to it. Um, but sorry, that's a long answer to your question. Maybe we need open primaries. That's a great idea. It works in places like Alaska and California. Um, and, and virtue is you elect people that really do represent the people rather than the extremes. Tori. Yeah, um, Tom, one of the reasons why uh, our organization has a good relationship with you is, is you know, we do a lot of cross-population. Um, we have a, a a policy exercise that that we hold in your, your class, you know, at least once a, a semester, uh, where your students get the opportunity to take a look at the federal budget and make some decisions uh, collectively, you know, as a group about what they would change to sort of help either reduce the deficit or, or, or balance the budget. And uh, given that you're dealing with a very uh, singularly defined group of people, these are all young people, they're all college students, so they're all all young and they're in college, uh, take that, take that, you know, for granted for a second, put that to the side. But what are your students most commonly saying to you about how to resolve our fiscal imbalance? Are there particular, do they they move to the revenues more often? Do they move to the spending side on the spending side? Do they give you any kind of feedback on how they think on about changes to our entitlement programs? What's sort of the common theme that comes from your students as, as they th look for ways to reduce future deficits? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question, Tori. Um, and hopefully you're gonna join us at one of these exercises, I have mm -hmm. to tell you that it is a highlight of the semester for these kids. They absolutely love it. They find it, it's the thing that really sticks with them the longest um, because they appreciate how hard it is to cut the deficit. Um, the thing that that 
what surprises me is their willingness to make some really significant spending cuts in some very popular programs, uh, entitlement programs, and their willingness to increase fees on things like, for example, Medicare um, beneficiaries, cut veterans, cut agriculture. They make some tough choices and, and also raise taxes. And really kind of the sort of the um, um, sort of the defining moment in, in the entire process at the end, after they have balanced the budget, is um, Phil Smith, who does a phenomenal job running it, the program, asks them, um, do you think you'll get reelected uh, having voted for this budget? And almost universally, they say no. <laughs> <laughs> so having made these tough choices, they now acknowledge the voters would probably reject them. So that's unfortunate. Um, that, that, that shows they're getting uh, both a political science uh, education as well as <laughs> budget education. I mean, the challenge is for every politician is there are really two and a half, only two and a half ways to, to, to reduce the deficit. The first, of course, is, is to cut spending. The second is to raise taxes. The third is to grow the economy, which politicians like to talk about. But, you know, that, that's an easy way out. But it, very few, you know, it's, it's, it's politicians never like to go back to their constituents and constituents, their voters and say, I've raised your taxes and I've cut your benefits. So please reelect me. It's sadly, you know, and that's why we need to convince voters that this is in their best interest. And it's not just in their best interest, but it's in the best interest of their children. And if we can make this a story about their children, then people are willing to do the right thing, I think. You know, one of the uh, things that the new speaker has talked about is a new fiscal commission. I was a little bit, uh, and I think that that could be uh, a very good idea, but it, it could also go off in the wrong direction if it's a commission that, you know, isn't committed to being bipartisan and having no partisan agenda. So I I, I, I didn't know whether the uh, there are any plans that you're aware of. I mean, it seems to me that you'd have to have something that would clearly be at a minimum, you know, have bipartisan co-chairs and would be the 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 one condition would be that there would be no preconditions for uh, for meeting. You know, the, the, it, it's tough. I mean, I I was served on the Simpson Bowl staff. I also served on the Super Committee staff. It turned out the super committee was neither very super nor much of a committee. Um, <laughs> but um, but the super committee was designed in such a way that it it created the, the fostered the best conditions for success because basically it was a fail safe. Number one, whatever we agreed to in the committee went straight to the floor, no amendments uh, and limits on debate. So it didn't go through committees. And then secondly, um, if we failed, there would be across the board devastating cuts in discretionary spending, both may, uh, on defense and non-defense. And we still didn't succeed. And I think one of the lessons that we took is, and, and we did say not, not everything should be on the table, but unfortunately not everything was on the table. Um, whatever your one's political views are, and one could demerit debate revenue or they're high enough or not, but there will be no deal unless there's significant revenue. I mean, that's just a simple political fact. And unless Republicans are willing to agree to some significant tax increases for some significant spending cuts, there will be no deal. I do think there's a, a real constituency within the Democratic Party to make some tough decisions. Um, it, it's not broadly held, but I think there are enough Democrats that would go along with it. 
but there's got to be, re- and you know, I think unfortunately a lot of Republicans remember what happened to George Herbert Walker Bush when he was defeated and said, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he violated that. And that was 1992. And I think that the anti-tax uh, view among Republicans has gotten just much more intense. That's what I find so odd about the Republicans' position on funding for the IRS. I mean, if no other way, you know, our tax gap has gotten so huge. If no other way to raise more revenue without raising taxes is just enforce the tax laws that we have. And the IRS needs more resources to do that. I mean, for Pete's sakes, they're dealing with computers that use floppy disks. I mean, it's 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 time for some upgrades and some and more people just to enforce the laws, you know, the tax laws that we have. So I just I I don't understand the Republicans and their their desire to gut the IRS, because that's just going to make the problem worse. I, I want to say the one thing, Paul, I give the Republicans credit for talking about the deficit. I think that that's important. And I think that that is to their credit. And I also give them, well, we haven't talked about this yet, but doing a regular order on appropriations bills. And I don't, I'm not sure we can talk about that another time. But I think those are two important things. But uh, but I agree with you in terms of the IRS. I don't understand that. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking with Capitol Hill budget veteran Tom Kahn about the new appropriations deadlines and the new House Speaker. Uh, Well, that's all the time we have for this segment. We're going to be right back with another segment with Richard Coffin of USA Facts. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I will talk with Richard Coffin of USA Facts, a nonprofit, nonpartisan civic initiative that makes government data easy for all Americans to access and understand. That's a very good mission, by the way, for people that are worried about the uh, the country's fiscal future or just uh, want to know more. The organization provides accessible and uh, accessible analysis of U.S. spending and outcomes uh, with the hope that that will help better ground public policy debates in facts. Uh, Coffin is Chief of Research and Advocacy at USA Facts, which was founded by Steve Ballmer. He joined the organization as its first employee in 2015, and uh, he's been doing a number of things there since, uh, really doing incredible work with uh, research and and, uh, uh, helping other organizations uh, benefit from the analysis that they do. Uh, Richard, uh, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Great to be here. I, I also should say it's uh, it's early in the morning where you are in Seattle, so thanks for uh, for getting up early to to do the show. Uh, just it's sort of a, a preliminary matter. Could you just give us a thumbnail s- a sketch of uh, USA Facts and how you came to be involved with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, thanks again for having me this morning. Um, USA Facts, we started in 2015. Uh, Steve Ballmer, former Microsoft CEO, um, left Microsoft um, and then started thinking about how to really set up his philanthropy. And uh, he went out to look for um, what government does, thinking that if he was going to contribute to solving the same problems the government is trying to solve, he needs to know where the gaps are, where government spends money, what the outcomes are, and, and, what, and what's missing that, that, they, could, that they could fill in. Um, and he was sort of surprised that there wasn't 
um, it's sort of an annual report for government in the way that you would see for a public uh, company in the United States. Uh, you know, no, no, no sort of here's where all the money goes, what the outcomes are, here's the current state of the country and everything like that. And so decided to, to, uh, to make one. Um, and we, we spent a, a couple of years going through uh, budget numbers, trying to combine federal, state and local spending, look at outcomes. Um, and by the time uh, 2017 had rolled around, people were talking about things like fake news and alternate facts. And we said, hey, it's it's kind of well, I'm grateful that he you know, was uh, was was paying me for the, uh, the couple of years to, to figure that out. It, it shouldn't it shouldn't take someone paying uh, any individual um, to help the American taxpayer uh, access data that uh, they already paid for. And so um, we decided to release a website with all this information um, and have spent the last several years uh, learning from that experience, building it out and um, trying to truly make a, a database product to help the American public um, and you know legislators understand the current state of the country and make strong database decisions. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of data on the website uh, for many, many different areas. It's not uh, just about the budget. Uh, we focus on the budget. Um, and one thing that uh, uh, I, I just wanted to highlight for our listeners is something that is called the 10K report, uh, which is enormously detailed. And uh, it, it, it goes into the financial status of the not just the federal government, but the, the nation as a whole. And I wonder if you could just sort of um, describe what that document is, is intended to, to, to be for readers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when when we were starting off thinking about how how are we going to really analyze government, uh, you know, S Steve had this idea that um, a, a 10K, which is the the SEC form 10K that public companies must file uh, for their shareholders every year, um, was really um, a super unbiased and um, you know accurate picture of of any sort of entity. And it's and he was thinking, well, if if I had to do this at Microsoft every every year. Why shouldn't the government have to do this exact same thing for themselves? And it's the the analysis, the framework that it provides is is really helpful. It's one that you know we didn't make up. It's the SECs. Um, it it relies on having a taxonomy year over year that doesn't change. Um, so we we uh, in making this uh, use the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, divided into four sections: establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and uh, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity for the uh, schoolhouse rock fans out there we've been you know singing along to that <laughs> past you know decade at this point um but the uh, uh it, it it only shows actuals it only shows historical data i mean it only shows data from inside the company which in this case would be the country um we don't you know we don't use external you know bias sources that could say what um you know that could sort of uh, have sort of a, a partisan agenda um, they really show, focus on material uh, parts of the company, you know, what's big, what matters, um, not like going into all the nitpicky stuff that we sometimes get lost in um, in the public debate. Um, shows changes over time, is complete, which show federal, state, and local spending. Um, and then, you know, most importantly, at the, at the end of it, uh, you know, in a, in a corporate setting, a CEO has to sign on the line and say, you know, to the best of my knowledge, these, these facts are true. And, you know, in our, in our dream world, uh, the government would do the same thing and we'd stop arguing over what, what is um, and rather turn to what, what should be. Um, and so that, that was sort of our dream is that the, the, the 10K, the framework for it really uh, provides both a good understanding of the country for those that want to read the 250 page document, but also the principles of it are really good for setting up an unbiased, uh, you know, nonpartisan data based uh, organization that's just focused on getting the data out to folks. Tori. 
I guess the first thing I'd like to say to, to the listeners is it, it might seem overwhelming to read a 250-page report, but I just want to say there are lots of pretty charts and tables and and graphs and stuff like that in there as well. It's not just you know 250 pages of, of blackface type. So uh, I encourage everyone to, to take a read. And I thought it did a really good job of explaining how we got here. I know a lot of the documents that I tend to digest as, as a budget watcher are projections of going forward. Um, and there really isn't a lot of discussion of how we got here. And I think one of the things that the document really makes apparent if you just spend some time looking at the tables is, okay, you can see how numbers have changed from 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020. And it gives you some sort of idea of, of, of how we got here. Um, I guess in putting this document together, Richard, I wanted to ask you, were, were there any uh, aha moments or surprise moments for you in putting together where your jaw was just literally on the floor? I had no idea. Any surprises? Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there have been so many because every year we do this, we learn something different. And, you know, we have the 10K. We also do this annual report that, that you know, is a little more digestible. And so we like learn so much stuff throughout that. I think, you know, the, the thing for me that always is sort of a foundational thing that shocks me. It's just that there, there are 90,000 governments in this country. That was a fact that I did not know um, before starting work here. And the fact that, you know, there are, um, you know, we spend so much time wrapped up in the federal government. There are 90,000 governments that actually, you know, provide services to taxpayers and do some of you know, the things that actually we think the government does, you know, on a daily basis uh, that we associate with government more um, are things that local governments do. Um, that that just shocks me. And the fact that there's, there, you know, our, the decentralization of it makes it really hard for um, you know, certain data to exist to see the big picture in certain ways um, is just uh, sort of an incredible fact to me. Uh, mm -hmm. That one gets me every time. Mm -hmm. In in talking about this, the 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 10K in particular, uh, how has it been received? When you when you talk to members of the public, I know you and Bob, for example, were on a panel yeah. uh, last week in in Denver, Colorado. Um, you know, how has this been received, and and what are some of the most you know common questions that you get from members of the public? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the idea of it is extremely well received. People, people love the idea that this this should exist. Um, when people read it, we tend to get you know a sort of more, um, uh, you know, uh, I would say an advanced customer that, that that reads the full document. They are super excited about it, right? They they get really into the idea that um, that uh, a we we did something that kind of brings together all these different governments and into into one picture. Um, they, they are really intrigued by the fact that there is. Um, uh, that th there is a, uh, th that we kind of could be from outside the government. I will say like, you know, we thought for a long time we were going to be told, hey, why are you doing this? The government does this, right? But we've actually gotten a lot of really um, strong excitement from people um, knowing that a company that, or a organization that is outside the government is doing this, that, you know, there really is someone um, that is putting this together from a, a nonpartisan lens and, and isn't, you know, having any of the baggage that comes along with government itself. And so, so that's been, been super exciting. Um, and then, you know, the, the, uh, I will say there's a, there's a bunch of, uh, challenges with the 10K itself. Like it's, it's a little bit out of date, right? The, the, the most recent year we can sort of, uh, snap to is, is 2020 right now because of the, um, the, the fact that it, it does take, uh, a long time to get, uh, data and normalize it from federal, state, and local governments while the, the, um, the Census Bureau does a great job of doing it. Uh, you know, we're a little bit stuck in the past. So it highlights a lot of the issues with data that, that we try to advocate for improving as well. Mm -hmm. And you do have a, a smaller budget brief that's uh, just on the federal budget. 
as well. I think. Uh, yeah, we we put out a we put out a variety of reports. We we do our our ten k is sort of the one thing we do around tax every year. We also put out an annual report for government that is a, a much more chart um, intensive version of it. This year we did it specifically for Congress. Um, we actually interviewed about fifty congressional staffers, try to figure out where they wanted data, and then went out and gave it to them. Um, and so we we put that out. Um, and then we've been we put out content on a on a daily basis, both for the um, the public trying to understand what's going on in the world and give a data based view of that. Uh, no interviews, just numbers, um, and then uh, briefs for for legislators to help them uh, ground any debate in facts. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Richard Coffin of USA Facts about uh, the uh, that organization's attempt to present nonpartisan, detailed data to inform public policy debates. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Richard Coffin of USA Facts, a nonprofit, nonpartisan civic initiative that makes government data easily available uh, for people in a more uh, accessible way and easier to understand. The organization provides analysis on U.S. spending and, and outcomes to help ground public policy debates. Um, when we left off, uh, Steve, I was about to turn to you for a question. Yeah. So you, you mentioned in the last segment, Richard, uh, the problem with the timeliness of data, um, that, that a lot of agencies or, or, you know, I guess probably state and local governments as well, you know, some reports come out, you know, every week or every month, every year, sometimes there's a big delay. What what other areas have you found in, in trying to compile data across federal, state, local governments? You know, which which areas do be- a better job? Uh, what's what are some of the, you know, the holes that you found in terms of the availability of the data or the timeliness of the data? And what efforts do you guys, you know, in trying to compile this data every year, you've identified problems. What what are some of the solutions that you might see to address some of the data shortfalls? Yeah, great question. Um, I, you know, we uh, we've been at this for you know almost almost a decade at this point. We, we've just learned so much about the, the pitfalls of, of government data, um, and th- there are there are just some some big challenges. You mentioned the timeliness um, is a huge one. Um, there are uh, the the mapping between federal, state, and local is a huge a huge challenge. Um, just you know, there's there's no standardization across a lot of these governments. Um, we spent a lot of time during COVID, for example, going and actually trying to gather data from all 50 states because that just wasn't something the government was set up to do. And the CDC used our data because they didn't have that sort of pipeline set up. So just that lack of um, connection is is a huge issue. Um, on the spending side, it's a challenge. Um, it, it's it's hard to see where money from legislation goes. Um, you know, there's been some great efforts like uh, USA Spending and the Data Act to see where um, where, where where spending goes, but it's really hard to track it to legislation, with the exception of a very couple pieces of legislation, a very small couple pieces of legislation. It's hard to actually see where the where the where the money's coming from. So if you're a policymaker, you can't really track what the money you spent did, um, and so that that's that's a big challenge. Um, you know, there, there's uh, presentation issues. A lot of data is stuck in PDFs within the government. 
um, a lot of data just isn't presented at all. It's, it's you know, it's 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 um, sort of locked in agencies and, and not presented in a way that's, that's really digestible. Um, and so that those are all things we're trying to do to standardize the, the presentation format, the visualization of it. Um, and then I will say there, there's some issues with how data is data is you know not used, and I think that that takes a um, in decision making, and that that, that I think is um, going to take a full sort of culture change to get people you know in legislative positions in Congress to to use data when they make decisions, um, you know make that data clear to the American public, uh, allow the public to to track along with the decisions they've made and the numbers that they use to make them, and then the outcomes that they intended, and then if you know if 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 the outcomes you know don't don't fit what the intention was hold them accountable and um you know i think this is a this is a a huge culture shift that, that would need to happen towards towards data-based uh, decision making in congress so in, in terms of tracking the, the the limitations or the shortfalls of the data i mean do, do you have a place on your website where you say okay you know here are recommendations for change or here's best practices in some states and here's what the other states need to do or you know is there sort of a a go-to list of things you found that would, 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 you know, could be turned into recommendations for improvement. Yeah. So in, in our most recent um, annual report for government that we did for Congress, um, you know, we, we, we asked them for, you know, where they care about data and then try to answer questions where we couldn't answer their questions. We told them how they could fix it and gave them a list of recommendations for how to improve the, the data. And so that that's what we have right now. We have, we put it out in our report and on our um, site uh, just last week, actually. Um, but I will say, long term, we're hoping to um, to really start doing what you were just mentioning for states, but for for federal agencies. Look at which agencies do data well and which ones don't, um, and try to kind of help uh, understand what best practices would be to uh, to um, make uh, the data best presented and available to the American public. So, hoping to do that um, a little bit later this year. Yeah. What What about like a, a glossary of terms? Because governments throw around lots of acronyms and terms that most people don't understand. If you maybe put together a glossary to sort of define or help people understand the terminology? We should do that. We, we've That's a great idea. We, we have a lot of um, pieces of content we call explainers that, you know, we'll just go through the basics of what is Medicare, right? What, you know, what, what is, what is the title tax credit, things like that. Um, but I, a glossary would be an amazing thing. I mean, we found that um, the, just the sort of government by the numbers, um, how do you understand what government does um, is something that the American public is really hungry for. And so it's something that we should really do more of. I love the, love the glossary idea. Yes, in, in terms of outreach efforts, you know, we do we we concentrate our our efforts on public engagement uh, exercises, and and you know, it's always a challenge to get people engaged and and interested. If, have you ever done any like quizzes? I mean, <laughs> it's just like know your government yeah. sort of thing, or or because it's such a wealth of data, and people love you know, to take quizzes. <laughs> and just, you know, I can see as a, you know, we do a budget exercise where people go through and make their own choices about yeah. the budget. Uh, you know, I can see some sort of a, a introductory uh, quiz that, that people would take. And then, and then that would lead to a discussion. Uh, yeah. And obviously that, you know, learn more by going to the website or something like that. But um, if, if you're uh, doing outreach ideas, uh, have you ever thought about something like that? You know, we have a we have a weekly fat quiz we put out on our site um, that um, I think it just asks like one or two questions a week. Um, it's not necessarily an intro to the to uh, government in general, but um, you know, definitely a, a cool idea to do sort of a, a broader. Yeah, it's a good. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's those are always fun. Yeah, yeah. Tori. Oh gosh, um, one of the the things that you talked about in the the ten k report or in, in the the explainer to the 10k report you were on capitol hill talking to lots of of government staff uh, people who work for 
members of Congress and agencies and asking them what they were looking for in data. What is it that, because these are the people that know best where to go find stuff, right? They're, yeah, they're used yeah. to getting their hands dirty in the data. I, I'm, I'm really curious to see what, what they had to say uh, yeah. in general about, you know, what, what do they find problematic about data rather than just, you know, timeliness. Yeah, totally. You know, th- so they, um, they they had a few things to say that were particularly interesting. First off, like the issues they covered, right? There were a lot that they really wanted to know about um, that we that there just is no data for, right? Um, they talked about things like uh, like cryptocurrency or like AI that was just you know kind of coming up this summer when we were when we were having these conversations. And and th- there's this sort of understanding that there's a, a failure of imagination to really understand how do we address data in the future, right? There's a lot of reaction to what data do we need now, but not a lot of what data will we need in a couple of years. And so um, that that was one thing that was particularly interesting is these these sort of um, you know. Uh, new issues. How do you really get data to for for those? Um, this just doesn't exist. Um, you know, I think that they were really concerned about the being able to track um, spending that they just spent. Right, that whole how do you track something from legislation? Really tough, right? And mm-hmm. you can do it first in crisis spending, like COVID and you know the Recovery Act. Um, right now, they let you, the USA spending tool that the Treasury puts out uh, is tracking the infrastructure spending. But that's about it, right? If you want to see where like the Chips Act money went, really hard, really hard to see. Um, and so how do you possibly evaluate whether or not it was a good idea, especially as you enter campaign season? Um, and then I th- one thing really surprising to me is, you know, we were like, hey, you know, do you use our tool? And, you know, th- the thing that was really interesting to me was they are so inundated by other data. That they, mm-hmm. they they don't really have time to go use something, right? They might get a CRS report. They you know they might they might you know be able to sort of commission something like that. But but they're so inundated with things that are just markedly partisan, <laughs> and you know they they know like they they you know they know that if they're going to get something from a think tank on the left or the right, that it's going to be partisan. But but they're really hungry for that thing that comes to them that is super easy to have access to in their like day to day lives that doesn't take them a ton of time to to access. Um, that is just unbiased and numbers based, mm-hmm. um, and that's where we where we really want to make a difference. Um, you know, we uh, we think quite frankly it's a waste of time for them to be working at all the you know accessing data issues that we do. We just want them to be able to use the data. So we're going to try to take care of the access part for them. I, I know, speaking from my experience on working on Capitol Hill, you know, the 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 only source of like that really nut, nuts and bolts data is is the Treasury account because that Treasury is the one that cuts yeah. the checks for all these different. Totally. You know, and you could have four or five different accounts for one program, and they mm-hmm. all met, they all record different things for different pieces of legislation. And it becomes a question of, okay, what do I add? What do I not add? What should yeah. be included? What should not be included? And it's really hard to get that sort of, you know, ten thousand feet eyeball of, yeah. as you said, where the money's going and what it's what it's building, what it's not building. If the spending was just tagged to the legislation it came from, that would just be a huge difference maker. Such a small change, but a huge difference maker. How on earth do you decide what facts to uh, look at? I mean, yeah. you know, we're going to be on the budget, but there yeah. is people will look at it. if they go on your website. There are many, many yeah. subjects uh, that they can look up. Uh, do you have some sort of <clears throat> vetting process for categories yeah. to add? Yeah, you know, so we've um, when we started out, we really focused on um, sort of that 10K idea of what is material, right? What are the the big spending things and the big drivers of change? Um, and so we, we we you know, would do driver analysis and, and use that as sort of the way to focus on certain topics. Um, eventually, as we wanted to kind of get stuff more into the American public, we've focused honestly heavily on um, what search engines are looking for. Um, and, you know, we, we use sort of search engine optimization techniques to make sure that we are understanding 
what people really care about and trying to answer those questions. Um, and, you know, some things we do are great and some things aren't, but, but that's how we know whether or not we use site traffic to understand whether or not we're actually getting to things that people care about. Well, uh, if our listeners want to learn more about this, they should go to usafacts.org and, uh, and look up any facts you want. That's <laughs> it's really quite a fascinating website. Uh, Richard Coffin, thank you for being our guest this week on Facing the Future. That's all the time we have. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I will be back uh, probably with Steve and Tori uh, next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>